From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. New guidance from the Justice Department says its components can't require its employees to get COVID vaccines. That guidance warns components on storing and accessing employee information. It also states components need a, quote, valid business reason for asking if employees have had a vaccine. The acting chief information officer at the Internal Revenue Service for the last 18 months is now the permanent CIO. Nancy Seeger became acting CIO in June 2019. FedScoop reports she was the agency's deputy CIO for filing season before she became CIO. The Defense Department's looking at early summer to onboard the first companies to do third-party assessments for cybersecurity maturity model certifications. The department's director of CMMC policy, Stacey Bosjanic, says until then, companies will have to do the work themselves. FedScoop reports Bosjanic says companies should follow the public model the department released last year. Senators Mark Warner and Marco Rubio are calling for a single leader to coordinate cleanup efforts after the solar winds hack. They write in a letter, quote, the federal government's response so far has lacked the leadership and coordination warranted by a significant cyber event. Brigadier General Greg Tuhill, U.S. Air Force, retired as president of Atgate Federal Group and former federal chief information security officer. Greg, welcome back. It's good to see you again. Walk me through the triage that's involved in a hack like this and all of the pieces that are the pieces of the government that are involved in understanding what happened and what happens next. Well, as you take a look at the triage, uh, the first thing is, is every department and agency has to be pulled. And I believe they've already done this uh, through the federal CISO Council to see, first of all, who downloaded that uh, contaminated software and, uh, and employed it throughout their systems. So that has already been done across the federal government. Now uh, they've gone through and they're in the process of seeing, okay, how many folks uh, did this? And then further, are there any indicators that somebody actually from the outside uh, leveraged some of the weaknesses that were introduced by the poison code. So all of that is underway right now, but the broader and the more difficult task is, so what do you do next? If in fact you have had this type of uh, breach or you've had a supply chain uh, divot in the road where you've had some contaminated code, typically a very capable nation state actor is gonna come in and they're gonna leave behind other pieces of code that leave um, a back door that they can come into later that you may not understand how that has been put in place and be able to detect that. So in some cases for really high risk enterprises, they're gonna to have to make some decisions and say, uh, I've, I've been breached maybe I need to burn down what I've had, my infrastructure, and replace it with uh, new stuff that hasn't been breached. And that kind of uh, risk management decision is part of the calculus, not only in the federal government, but across the uh, private sector as well. That you went where I anticipated that you would go, which is there becomes a point of no return, I imagine, where one decides or an organization decides, we, we just can't take the chance that there still is something there that we can't find. Is, would one person, as the senators have proposed, be the right person to help lead that decision-making across government, 
or where should that decision-making process live, do you think, Greg? Ideally, I would uh, put that in the chief information security officer's lap. But as you take a look at the, the birthright authorities and empowerment of the federal CISO, Congress has yet to act to spell out what those authorities are and, and further give uh, the federal chief information security officer uh, the empowerment to go out and coordinate a lot of those activities. So the federal chief information officer is somebody who has got the power of persuasion, but not necessarily the authority that Congress has given. Now, that said, I, my understanding is as late last night, uh, and has been appointed to, to lead the effort on incident response across the the federal government, and Anne is extremely capable. Uh, she's got the technical background as well as the executive and leadership background to help make it, things happen across both .gov as well as uh, .mil, and that'll be extremely helpful. But ultimately, nobody wants to burn down any infrastructure, and I think what's going to happen is this is going to accelerate the implementation of zero trust as a security strategy because this is probably going to happen again uh, from the standpoint of having supply chain uh, deficiencies highlighted. If you don't burn down the infrastructure, though, is zero trust sufficient or are the other tools that agencies have at their, uh, their disposal, are they enough to ensure that you, you're safe against whatever code might be there that you don't see? I don't think it, uh, if you rely solely on tools alone, you're never going to get risk to zero. And uh, as you take a look at cybersecurity writ large, it's about people, process, and technology. And the response to actions like this, you know, this particular incident, has to factor in the people, the process, and the technology. And so zero trust as a strategy is not just based on the technology, it's on all of the above. So I think as you take a look at trying to minimize risk, um, uh, using the zero trust security strategy takes the blast radius down from the entire enterprise down to the individual. And that's really where the state of the art is right now. And federal government's been late to need in implementing it. We have about a minute left, Greg. Is this something from which an organization or the government as an enterprise recovers? Is it something that one feels that uh, we are past? What's the end look like for thinking about a breach like solar winds? Well, I don't think you're ever going to uh, see the end of these type of uh, breaches. What you have to do is, is you have to put in place the uh, strategies, the policies, and you have to execute extremely well to minimize your risk. Um, we're going to see supply chain uh, breaches in the future, just as we've seen them in the past. This one is a most serious one that I've seen thus far. But that said, the government doesn't stop and neither do your businesses. So you have to put in place those strategies, the plans and the execution that's going to enable you to take a punch and keep on going. And when it comes to this particular uh, incident, there's still a lot more to learn, uh, but I believe that this is really going to accelerate the need to implement zero trust security strategies in both .gov as well as .mil and across the private sector as well. Greg Tuhill, thanks very much as always. Thanks so much, Francis. Great seeing you. Up next, the next national defense strategy, a tweak or a paradigm shift straight ahead on Government Matters, the policy they need to get to the tip of the spear. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. The Biden administration plans to release its updated national defense strategy sometime next year. That new strategy will come as a, ma a major cyber incident escalating tensions with Russia and an international pandemic change the nation's defense priorities potentially. Clementine Starling is deputy director of Forward Defense and resident fellow at the Atlantic Council. She's writing about the NDS along with Matthew Crouch in the national interest. Clementine, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on. And you and Matthew refer in this piece to a paradigm adjustment, not a paradigm shift. What's the difference? Yeah, thank you, Francis. It's great to be here. And um, that's a great question. Um, by an adjustment, not a shift, what we mean is in the last NDS, the 2018 NDS, um, it did a very good job of characterizing the security environment, um, putting great power competition back on the agenda, which is key. That still holds true today and should remain the same. But the adjustment that we, um, we think is critical is to characterize that competition uh, in a new way to broaden it out. So the last NDS really focused on great power competition as being defined by high-end, high-tech warfare, um, which is true, the US needs to prepare for that. But the reality is on a daily, weekly basis, the US and its allies face a, a swath of hybrid attacks from near peer competitors like Russia and China. And the next NDS needs to uh, pivot to focusing not only on the high-end high-tech, but also the lower end, below the threshold, hybrid threats um, that really risk vulnerabilities to the US. Um, and there needs to be this acknowledgement that adversaries like China uh, are quite happy to win or to dominate by not firing a single bullet. So if that's where our, our competitors are competing with us today, we need to meet them there and compete in that hybrid realm as well. You and Mr. Crouch propose four pillars on which to build the next NDS. The first of those is posturing the department for effective multi-spectrum competition. And it sounds from your description like there's much more to it than just say designating cyber as another domain and moving on. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I think what that um, posturing for effective uh, multi-spectrum competition means is that means not just ensuring that um, that that's a core cool feature in the NDS, but that it's a core cool feature in the national security strategy as well. Because to compete across multiple spectrums, so in dealing with disinformation, cyber attacks, predatory economic practices, um, coercive diplomacy, the whole range of, of hybrid threats really requires not only DOD to have a key role and defining what that role is um, in multi-spectrum competition, but also DOD supporting other agencies like the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Justice, Department of State. Um, so what we're really calling for is a whole of government approach to that multi-spectrum competition, because the reality is um, there is no longer such a distinction between international threats and threats to the homeland. They bleed together. We've seen that. Um, so it requires our government agencies to respond collectively and share situational awareness, share the situational picture and determine defined kind of roles and resources um, for how to compete in those different areas of competition collectively. 
I'm going to skip out of order for a moment for the sake of time. You referenced number three as lethality and force modernization, and number four as departmental and acquisition reform. Those are topics that we've covered on this program on a number of occasions. So I want to go back to number two, Clementine, and that is modernizing and strengthening alliances. And you and Mr. Crouch referenced the Quad and uh, NATO, of course, and uh, some of the other mechanisms. Is it, a, is it time for some kind of treaty or, or alliance mechanism in the South Pacific similar to NATO, do you think? Or are the alliances that we have sufficient if they're strengthened somewhat? Um, it's a great question. I think uh, it's, it's a challenge. The U.S. needs to rely on its allies and partners because it can't be everywhere globally, especially when dealing with two near-peer competitors who are obviously in different regions of the world, but they are also active in other continents globally. Um, so in the next NDS, the U.S. absolutely needs to prioritize where it wants to be in terms of presence, in terms of um, investing in uh, what it chooses to invest in uh, in terms of defense technology. On the alliances front, um, I, I think it would be very tough to create a version of NATO in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, the history, the relationships between the U.S.'s allies and partners there are, are very complex. But I do absolutely believe that the U.S. needs to shore up its existing alliances in the Indo-Pacific and attempt to turn partners that, it, that currently exist into new allies, perhaps. So strengthening the U.S.'s relationship with partners like India, um, with Indonesia, with kind of identifying who those allies are um, and, and really determining what kinds of ways the relationship could be strengthened, whether that's kind of training and exercising, it's foreign military sales, there are a range of different things, as well as encouraging the U.S. as allies and partners to work together, not just with the U.S., but shoring up those relationships in that way, too, would be very important. Clementine Starling, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much. You can find a link to that piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, when's a major hack considered a cyber attack? Straight ahead on Government Matters, the difference between espionage and attacks and why it matters. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. Some experts say the SolarWinds cyber breach was among the biggest cyber attacks the country's faced. Other experts say the incident wasn't an attack at all. James Vandeveld is adjunct faculty member at George Mason University, Johns Hopkins, and the National Intelligence University. He's sharing his own views here and in C4ISRnet. James, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. You write this, uh, if the Russians have this sort of cyber espionage tradecraft, you can be sure the Chinese have or soon will have it too. What is cyber espionage tradecraft, and how does that frame differently the view that you have about what happened with SolarWinds? Well, keep in mind that in this event, no government service was interrupted or stopped. Instead, the Russians used a software intrusion in order to spy on uh, American servers. So they collected data but stopped nothing. By cleverly uh, interfering with the, uh, the supply chain, of the software that was introduced into the American computers, the Russians used a very stealthy technique. I suspect the Chinese are learning from this event. 
What do we learn from this internally? And, and why is it your sense, or the sense that I take from your piece, is that you think that we may be thinking about this the wrong way? Why so? Well, it's important to divide uh, the various malicious activity in cyberspace. There's attack on one extreme. That's the disruption of services, the uh, interruption or destruction of, uh, of, of service or um, something like an electrical grid or a dam. The other extreme is espionage, where no one is actually hurt, but the country could lose a lot of important data in insight and allow the adversary insight into government services, communications, technology, uh, opinions, trade secrets, that sort of thing. In between is a lot of uh, um, uh, gray area activity. In other words, uh, the Russians, if they were behind this, may have also left behind code on these servers, which could subsequently be used to interrupt service. In that case, then that activity would become attack. But at the moment, so far, it looks like this event was just an act of stealing data. How does that, uh, how does that uh, impact, how does that influence the way that we should respond, if we should even respond at all, and in the context of maybe never knowing uh, publicly if we respond or not? Well, no event of espionage has ever been declared an act of war. And very few acts of espionage, in fact, I can't really think of any, uh, were responded to with an act of armed conflict. So the breach may have been severe. The Russians may have learned a great deal from uh, collecting this data. But uh, responding with a, an armed attack would be inconsistent with uh, the history of this type of competition. The best way to defend is to increase defenses, to share within the, uh, the government their uh, cybersecurity practices, try to make sure breaches don't occur, to protect your supply chain so that software that's used by the U.S. government isn't corrupted before it's downloaded. That's the best way to deter and to prevent this type of event. We've both read wonderful books about espionage and this type of tra uh, tradecraft that happened during the Cold War. It happened on both sides, Soviet Union and United States. I read between the lines of that line that I cited earlier, if the Russians had this sort of tradecraft, the Chinese do too, we do too, I imagine. And I, I, so it strikes me that this becomes similar in execution, retribution, and so on as what we saw during the Cold War. Is that a fair assumption on my part? Very much so, Francis, of course. Uh, as you know very well, uh, all the major powers conduct cyber espionage. It's not likely uh, the Russians or the Chinese will change that uh, imperative for them, uh, no matter what we do. Even if the Biden administration were to take a severe uh, 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 response to this event, it's really unlikely the Russians would stop continuing to conduct cyber espionage. This is part of the competition, the friction between the major powers that's likely to continue. Now, cyber attack is a different story. And those events can be dissuaded, deterred by the threat of a counter cyber attack or a use of armed force, um, uh, actual violence, kinetic conflict in response to a cyber attack. But so far, the SolarWinds event seems to have been uh, uh, a, a, an act of cyber espionage, very hard to deter. 
So my takeaway then, James, from your piece is not that we should do nothing, but that we should bide our time. Is that a, is that a fair read? Um, perhaps uh, double efforts at cybersecurity share among the interagency all their best practices, involve the Department of Defense if they have some insights as well, share these uh, tradecraft with our allies, learn from uh, those allies as well about uh, um, what malicious activities is, is occurring on their networks, uh, increase cyber defense as much as possible, uh, be poised uh, to take retribution if the event changes into actual cyber attack. Um, that's the, the, the best and mo most traditional activity uh, that states conduct when faced with cyber espionage. James, we have about 30 seconds left. You close this piece by writing, cyberspace is delivering for the malicious authoritarian states of the world. If we follow the vision that you just outlined, can it also uh, deliver for us as well? Well, certainly. Um, cyberspace has been a boon for the U.S. economy. Unfortunately, it's also been a terrific life-saving uh, vector domain for our adversaries. Um, right now, the domain is uh, perhaps the worst of all the military domains. It's the one where so much espionage is conducted, so much intellectual property is lost. Um, at the moment, perhaps, our adversaries are benefiting more from cyberspace than we are. Um, our, our goal is to try to shape the domain back into something that advances Western institutions and protects our defense and intellectual property. James Vandeveld, thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Francis. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every newscast when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.